Hey, this is Major Jonathan Porch of the Alabama National Guard, and if you want to know what's happening in information security, you should be listening to the InfoSec Sync podcast with my good friend, Nick Thomas. If you're looking for insight into the vast world of information security, then you're in the right place. Welcome to the InfoSec Sync podcast, the only top-rated information security podcast committed to helping you enhance your cyber skill set. Listen in on conversations with world-class information security thought leaders, subject matter experts, authors, and more as we exchange ideas, best practices, and discuss the latest trends, threats, strategies, and solutions for your success. So get ready to get in sync with your host, Nick Thomas. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the InfoSexing podcast where we keep you in sync with the ever-changing world of information security. I'm your host, Nick Thomas, and today we're talking to another member of the Alabama National Guard who was also an information security officer for a major bank and a managing partner for a security company. So he's a cybersecurity professional with over 20 years of technical and operational experience in both civilian industry and the U.S. military. His recent emphasis on cybersecurity in healthcare and cyber incident response. He truly enjoys difficult problems and the satisfaction that comes with resolution. And lastly, he firmly believes that the Star Trek universe has more insightful plots and more richful developed characters than the Star Wars universe. And welcome a spirited debate on this topic. So welcome, Mr. Jonathan Porch. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Nick. I'm happy to be here. Great. Uh, so your current roles right now, you're currently an ISO for a commercial bank in Birmingham, Alabama. You're also a um, major in the Army National Guard and a team chief for Alabama's defensive cyber operations element and owner of Scorpion Security. So yep. with all with all those uh, jobs you have there, um, I guess you're a, a very busy guy and you're a Seems like you're a cyber subject matter expert. Uh, well, I am very busy. That's that's certain. Um, my wife, much to her chagrin, I gave up sleeping a few years ago, um, <laughs> so I can keep all the balls in the air. So, with with all these um, all these uh, difficult jobs you have, how did you get into cybersecurity? Uh, well, so that's a fair question, and and so most modern day cyber guys have a story of how we got here. Um, I was an IT professional, you know, the traditional server uh, storage virtualization guy for, for several years, about 15 years here in the Birmingham area. And uh, at one of my previous employers, uh, we, we suffered a pretty significant breach. And although I was familiar with the typical InfoSec, you know, make sure that we're patched and uh, that, you know, we have good password policies, uh, ultimately, I, I don't think that I was a cybersecurity professional at the time. Uh, and I got a trial by fire as we started bringing in law enforcement agencies and some uh, regulatory agencies to help us out in the incident response. I, I got a baptism by fire of uh, of incident response. And so that um, kind of started my civilian transition. Uh, and simultaneously, the United States Army was implementing um, the cyber branch officially uh, as a branch of uh, of service. And, and so historically, Cyber had always been a subset of intelligence and or a subset of uh, signal or communications. But for the first time, the Army was was creating a, a distinct and separate cyber branch. And that just kind of coincided with my civilian transition. And uh, 
you know, kind of resulted in a simultaneous transition both in the in the National Guard and in the civilian world. Wow. So that trial by fire on an incident, that that's a that's very crazy to think about doing that, even though I've been through incidents. So I was actually trained on um, incident response, but to not be trained and to go through it. <laughs> yeah, it's a very sobering experience. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> prior, prior to doing that, were you always in IT? Yeah. So, uh, you know, starting off in college, I, uh, I was a computer guy, um, not because I really had a passion for it. Uh, I, I love problem solving and, and I love the challenge of it. But ultimately, in college, at least it was really lucrative. Uh, and that kind of evolved into me pursuing my, you know, my interests and hobbies and passions. And, um, you know, you fast forward 20 years later and I'm, I'm still, you know, and an a problem solver and an engineer at heart. So since you've been through IT and now um, you've involved into cybersecurity InfoSec, what do you think the difference is? Or what would you say the difference is? Or is there a difference? Oh, gosh, so there, there's a significant difference. And so, you know, being a member of IT uh, is to provide operational support, right? We are, we are here to make sure that whatever your business unit is, whether it's a hospital or a bank or the United States government uh, or a military unit, you know, can perform their mission. And how do we leverage technology to accomplish the organizational goals? You know, that's kind of the fundamental role of IT. Uh, and then the fundamental role of cybersecurity is how do we protect that technology so that we can accomplish the organizational goals? Um, I, I, I've used the analogy often that, you know, cybersecurity is using technology to influence technology or using technology to defend against, you know, being influenced by other technology as opposed to, you know, electronic warfare, which is using physics to influence technology. So the physical mediums that we communicate through or that the systems used to operate. Um, but, you know, IT would be, you know, by my definition of using technology to accomplish those operational goals, which is very different than defending it. Very interesting. Um, what's your current um, MOS in the Army? So in the Army, I'm a 17 Alpha, uh, which is a cyber warfare officer. Um, again, cyber warfare has been a relatively new formal creation in the Army uh, coming into existence only in 2016. Um, I was one of the first officers already being a major. Uh, there's, there's not a clear transition path at the time you know, for how do we make cyber majors uh, the Army is more focused on how to make cyber lieutenants uh, that can then, you know, grow into captains and captains into majors and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I came in at a very interesting time where my peer group were, you know, just civilian professionals who uh, entered into the, the space and with very little formal training and very little Army doctrine uh, to rely on. So I was actually the first 17 Alpha in the state of Alabama. Uh, I'm the still the senior 17 Alpha in the state, and I likely will be till I retire uh, just because as I, you know, progress and matriculate closer to retirement, uh, you know, my, I have no peers, uh, at least in in the state. How many uh, 17As are there? Uh, so, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a growing population. Uh, the Army is continuing to make purebreds. Um, currently, there are only 22 cyber majors that are fully qualified in the National Guard, uh, and I'm one of those. Uh, soon to be promoted as lieutenant colonel, the number will drop to about 18 fully qualified, you know, cyber lieutenant colonels. Uh, so, you know, as I matriculate higher, it's a smaller population. 
Okay. Was there anything you had to go through to make a 17A? <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> again, at the time, the army had a really immature process. So it was just basically a, you know, you submit a packet to a board and that board, you know, is, is impaneled at, at, you know, some smoke filled back room at, uh, the cyber center of excellence. And you really don't know who, who those people are and what their experience are. So your, your packet just has to, you know, have enough force and enough strength to convince this, this nameless, faithless panel that will never actually meet you in person that, uh, that you're qualified. Now the process has matured since then. Uh, and there's, there's still a packet, but it's now with more defined, uh, requirements, but ultimately what it comes down to is, you know, self-determination. And as an officer, you have to make, the decision that this is what's going to happen and that you're going to accomplish this and you'll apply to the board. And if the board rejects you, then you'll apply again. Um, certifications certainly carry a lot of weight in that. So for me, I, uh, I went out and I got my, my CEH, my certified ethical hacker. I got my CISP and I got my CASP, which is the CompTIA advanced, um, security professional, uh, just to kind of get the three best of breeds, uh, that I could capture from DOD 8140, mm-hmm. which is the, you know, the, the regulation that governs uh, certifications for technical professionals. Um, you have to have a top secret security clearance. Uh, as part of my later um, operational roles, I, I had to get a polygraph. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was a relatively arduous, daunting process. And, you know, I often talk to, to young officers or, or enlisted soldiers that are wanting to branch into cyber and, and they, you know, they just don't know where to start. And they're like, look, man, there's still not a lot of, uh, not a lot of uh, precedence. And, and some of it's still self-determination. You just have to start chiseling away and, you know, make that packet as strong as it can be and submit it. And if you get rejected, submit it again. So I know in the civilian world, there is a serious shortage of cyber talent. Um, Is it like that in the Army as well? Uh, It absolutely is. So, yeah, the military suffers from the same problems that the civilian industry suffers with. You you spend time and energy investing in, in young leaders to make them cyber professionals. And then, you know, they get fully trained and they get fully qualified and either they move on to another assignment within the military or they exit the military for civilian opportunities. Uh, that, that's a struggle, you know, across the board. Uh, and I heard in, in your last episode, speaking with Jeremy Leisher, you know, the, the conversation of, well, you know, what happens if we train people and they leave versus what happens if we don't train them and they stay, <laughs> right. uh, you know, that's a very difficult decision. Um, and so having a, a good cyber professional in the military is very similar to having a good cyber professional in the civilian world. It's kind of a, you know, I, I equate our resume to a three-part little triangle. Um, and, and part of that is going to be certifications. And although I don't cert- think certifications are an ends to a means, I think that certainly they can help uh, be used as a tool to make sure that there's an established baseline of knowledge. Uh, and, and the better you know, the better we can educate people in the same conversation uh, through standardization, then, then the more we'll all be speaking the same language. Uh, you have formal education. I know a lot of tech, technologists don't believe that, you know, they need a college degree to be, uh, to be competitive. But, you know, I would counter with the fact that college degrees make us well-rounded individuals. And whether that's an associate's degree or a certification program or a trade school, um, I, I think is up for the community to decide. But ultimately, I think that formal education has value in making us all 
you know, well-rounded mm-hmm. and, and forcing us to interact in a common language. Uh, and then the third part of that uh, resume is really your experience. And, and that's one of the things that, you know, a lot of people that are getting into, especially in the military, they, they want to shortcut that, right? They don't want to get a job at a help desk somewhere and pay their dues. They're looking to join the military and, you know, in two or three years be a, be a fully bred cyber professional. Uh, but just like in the civilian world, you know, sometimes you just have to start at the bottom and keep trudging along. So you are the team chief for Alabama DCOE. So is the DCOE a cyber protection team? Um, so it's not. So the cyber protection team is a 39-man team uh, with subordinate uh, elements that can deploy independently. And they have, a, they have a number of capabilities, but ultimately they're doing you know, instant response uh, at the behest of the United States Army or the United States military, rather. Um, cyber protection teams are, are found all throughout the service. Uh, the DCOE is the Defensive Cyber Operations Element, and uh, each of the 54 states and territories have their own DCOE that's been assigned to them to help them defend DOTAN, uh, which is the Defen- Department of Defense Information Network. So as opposed to a CPT, which is a deployable unit that can go anywhere in the world and do instant response, uh, a DCOE is a localized uh, formation that, that deals with protecting the government network uh, here at home. And also, it says you're a uh, first CPT commander. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so cyber protection teams were new to the Army uh, again, and they were really new to the National Guard. Uh, so about the time that I, I converted over to a cyber officer, uh, the state of Alabama was awarded a cyber protection team for the first time, uh, along with uh, downtrace units in Tennessee and Kentucky. So it was a, a unit that spanned three different states, uh, and they were looking for a commander. Uh, and it was interesting that, you know, I happened to be the only 17 alpha in the state. So <laughs> <laughs> kind of made sense. Uh, so I, I, I got the pleasure of um, most majors don't have the opportunity for a command. Uh, commands are typically found for company captains and for battalions as lieutenant colonels. Uh, so I got the rare distinction of being a commander as a major as well as my commands as a captain. So uh, huge opportunity, huge honor, uh, a lot of challenges, but. You know, we, we learned a lot as a formation. I learned a lot, you know, professionally uh, as both the cyber professional and as a as an army officer. That's awesome that you did, that you did that. I want to pull the thread a little bit. Uh, what we talked about earlier on on um, getting into cybersecurity and how people don't want the help desk job and coming into the military. What is your experience or knowledge on certification versus experience versus education? Well, and again, I think that it's a, it's a three part um, conversation, right? So uh, I think the perfect candidate has all three, Uh, you know, for, for an entry level person, maybe that means security plus and a help desk job and, you know, some, some time, at a, at a junior college or something like that for a, a mid-level, maybe that means a master's degree and a CISP and, you know, some time in management. Uh, I think that each position is going to be a little bit different, but I think that that triangle, you know, strengths in one corner of that triangle can certainly overcome weaknesses in another. Uh, so without any formal education, but, you know, great certifications, I think that, you know, those, those things kind of push and pull, but ideally, you know, you have a good mix. Um, mm-hmm. I will say that, you know, and, and I have this conversation with people often. They say, you know, well, I know people with a college degree that, you know, don't know what they're talking about. Or I know people with a CISP that don't know what they're talking about. 
but I would also counter that I know a lot of professionals that have been doing this for 20 years that don't necessarily know what they're talking about either. <laughs> so I think that it's dangerous to judge an entire population of, you know, people with certifications or people with education or people with, you know, experience by, you know, your, your relationships with the few. Um, interestingly, I read a, uh, an interesting article by Paul DeSouza, uh, and I don't know if you know Paul, but he's, he's very active uh, there nationally in the, uh, in the capital region. But he, he posed kind of the same three things that I've been espousing for years, but he added a fourth corner um, in networking and, uh, you know, contacts, right? Because ultimately, right. It, sometimes it does come down to who you know. And I think that um, working your tail off somewhere and doing a good job uh, pays dividends in the fact that people recognize that. And, and those, those recognitions and those relationships can benefit you down the road. Uh, I've certainly been uh, the beneficiary of, of mentors over the years. And I think that that's really important. Uh, and that's probably something that we emphasize a lot in the military that, that the civilian world kind of loses sight of is that formal, former, formal mentorship, uh, relationship with, you know, uh, people that are, have already been where you're trying to go. Right. Yeah. Especially with people coming to commands and going, you, you sponsor them and you, you show them the ropes and, um, mentor them through their uh, job and, and their career. Yeah, certainly. Um, let's talk about cyber and the Army versus the National Guard. Um, okay, so that's an interesting conversation. So, uh, you know, in the Army, and, and I know that, again, you and Jeremy talked about this last week, or in your last episode, rather. Um, you know, the Army is very good at a lot of things. And, and when you're talking to a career soldier, uh, an active duty soldier or sailor, airman or Marine, it doesn't really matter. Uh, they have a career spent doing that one thing. Uh, and particularly in the Army, you know, we are very um, model driven. So, you know, you'll you'll do this assignment. So, for example, as, uh, as a lieutenant, you need to be a platoon leader and then an XO. And you're promoted a captain. You'll go to staff and then you'll come back for command. And, you know, there's a very regimented model to that uh, as opposed to the National Guard. And, and again, you and Jeremy spoke about this where you might have someone who is, you know, an instant responder. You might have someone who is a police officer. You might have someone mm -hmm. who is, a, you know, a medic. Um, I had a, an E5 uh, truck commander in one of my previous units that was a plant manager for a you know multi-million dollar steel mill. Uh, that guy had tremendous leadership capabilities and problem-solving capabilities that you just don't find in the typical E5 in the Army. So I think that uniquely in cyber, the Guard and the Reserves brings a disproportionate skill set um, to our active duty counterparts. And I've personally lived that out through uh, my participation in Task Force Echo, uh, where a couple years ago, as a member of the National Guard, we deployed to the D.C. area and supported our cyber and U.S. Cyber Command in a real-world mission, the largest National Guard cyber deployment in history. And uh, our, our task force, which is all guardsmen uh, with a handful of you know, augmentees from the reserves, had unbelievable capability uh, that the active duty just – not that they're incapable of producing it, but it's far less uh, less diversity of skills mm -hmm. uh, because we have guys that have been systems administrators and they've been storage administrators and backup administrators and um, you know they're they're plant leaders and they're CISOs and they're CIOs as opposed to an army formation where you're going to find a guy who's who's been doing fundamentally you know the same task or or the same family of tasks throughout his career. 
So we find the same thing in um, the Navy as I'm in the Navy Reserves. We have people with phenomenal backgrounds that are regular enlisted, but yet they're a, a CIO or a CISO of a company or a vice president um, in cybersecurity somewhere doing great things during the week. <laughs> it's yeah, crazy. Absolutely. And, you know, even on the DCO, uh, I have an E5 who's a serial entrepreneur who started and, and successfully spun off multiple businesses. Uh, you know, I've got a guy that works for the largest healthcare provider in the United States as one of their um, senior uh, instant responders. Um, I have the ISSM or the information security manager for the state of Alabama, you know, that works on that team. So we have just tremendous talent that is disproportionate, you know, for their rank and their role in the military. But, you know, they obviously bring those skills with them when they put on the uniform. So it, it just makes us incredibly uh, diverse and, quite frankly, you know, humbling to, you know, to be a part of that team, much less to lead it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, being that we're both um, civilian and uh, military, we have to comply with a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, the whole security uh, versus compliance. So let's hear your take on your civilian industry versus uh, what what you're doing um, in the government. What standards are you having to meet there? Well, and so you, you mentioned in my in my bio that, you know, I have recent experience in healthcare. Now I'm in banking. Uh, those are very different regulatory environments, but ultimately, you know, compliance is compliance. You're given a framework or a body, uh, and then, you know, you have to work within that. So in healthcare, I've, I have tremendous experience with HIPAA. Within banking, it's FDIC and PCI. Uh, within the government, it's FISMA, which is the Federal Information Security Management Act. Uh, and now, more recently, CMMC, which affects you know government contractors uh, that that are doing business with EOD, and so all of those you know have different standards, they're different frameworks, but ultimately, you know they provide a a compliance uh, language that is common for that industry. Um, now, you did bring up um, you know compliance versus security, and I want to be very clear; those are very different things. Um, we find all the time compliant organizations that still get breached uh, because they had fundamental risk. Uh, and you can be, you know, you, you can be secure and still not be compliant. Uh, so as the ISO uh, for a civilian bank, you know, that's a, that's a fine line I have to walk. I have to keep the, the regulators and the auditors yep. happy because, you know, there's regulatory risk. If we're found to be non-compliant, it doesn't matter how secure we are. You know, we're facing fines or we're facing, you know, the, uh, the impediment of our business and operations. And the same thing goes for the government, right? You know, uh, I'm sure you see this in the Navy Reserves, but every couple of years you'll have a compliance, you know, this big all-encompassing compliance audit, and everything becomes about, you know, passing the test. Uh, and security, unfortunately, sometimes takes a back seat to that, that regulatory effort. Mm -hmm. um, but... They're, they're both important, right? We uh, Compliance is, is very important because it creates those standards and it creates a repeatable process uh, of known conditions that, that we can operate within. Uh, but at the same time, we can't focus solely on compliance. You know, we have to address our actual risk and at some point, you know, spend our resources where, you know, we can spend $30,000 making something compliant or we can spend that same $30,000 reducing our risk and, you know, assuming some regulatory risk. So it's a good balance and it's all about communicating with your leadership and explaining, 
uh, your situation and, and you know, not getting micro vision and focusing mm-hmm. on one problem set and forsaking the others. And and of course the uh, standards we have to go um, through, such as the uh, the RMF or CMMC um, NIST standards, we have to uh, lock uh, boxes down for and so forth. So, yeah, we've got to um, use those frameworks and um, take care of that operational risk, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, um, in order to do that, we need people. We need resources. Yeah, we do. And and so, you know, you hear that often. I know that you and Jeremy talked about it again in your last episode, but um, ultimately, you know, we never have enough people. And there's always going to be a war between convenience and security. Uh, and, and so I, I, I use this analogy. My wife hates locking her car. She finds it terribly inconvenient. I hope you have a garage, right? <laughs> uh, we do, actually. Uh, and, and that's something that, you know, we've we've talked about over the years. But, you know, when we first got married, she would just, you know, leave her car unlocked. I was like, honey, that's that's not safe. And she's like, yeah, but, you know, I don't want to lock my keys in my car and things like that. And we can look at the evolution of, you know, just the car, right? So the car was generally, we, we credit um, the, the German engineer Benz with inventing the first automobile uh, in the 1880s. Uh, and, and for several decades, there was no security whatsoever. Cars were just, you know, you just parked them wherever. Uh, and it wasn't until 1911 that Bosch created the first keyed ignition, uh, where you needed a key to start the car. And that brought security, and that's great, but, you know, it also came with what happens when you lose the key. And so for the first time, people were really inconvenienced, and they had poor adoption rates of these, of these keyed ignitions because people didn't want to lose the key, so they just didn't use it at all. Uh, and it wasn't until the 1920s that we had the first locking car doors. Uh, and then not until the 1990s that we had the first, uh, you know, chipped ignitions, which, of course, we all know if you if you have a modern car and you lose your key, you know, it's really expensive. And you have to go to a dealership to get those chipped keys replaced. Yeah. So, so, you know, progressively we can see just in that simple little, you know, silly analogy how – more and more security in our automobiles has resulted in less and less convenience. You know, uh, we start off with we have to keep a key to crank it, and now we have locking doors so we can lock our keys in our car inadvertently, and then we have chipped keys that, you know, once you lose them, they're really expensive and hard to replace. But just, we're getting more and more secure, but we're getting less and less convenient. So part of the, the problem as Americans is we crave our convenience, right? We crave our independence and we just fundamentally bristle at rules and, and constraints. Uh, so that's, that creates a challenge to cybersecurity, you know, both in the military and in the civilian world. We see every time the, the technologists put more controls in, we see leadership, you know, make moves to, to make them less restrictive and, and more convenient. Um, so yeah, we need more resources. We need people with fundamental training, uh, uh, more you know, better cyber hygiene at early ages, uh, and we need a cultural shift away from you know some of the convenience and and towards more security. That sounds good. Um, what do you think about all the IoT uh, stuff that we have out there, including Alexa, Siri, always on, listening? So, <laughs> oh gosh, um, you know, I, I'm I'm a I'm a victim like everyone else, right? I love my my gadgets and my devices, and right. You know, everyone's got a tablet and a cell phone and a smartwatch, and you know, I've got I, I wear Bluetooth-enabled hearing aids, and uh, you know, my threat 
surface continues to grow just like everyone else. And, you know, uh, we have Alexa and we have smart TVs and, you know, it's only going to continue to grow. Uh, so I think that we as cyber professionals have to, you know, we have to learn how to deal with the technology, but we also have to learn how to deal with the, you know, the psychology of having those things around us at all times. Uh, I, I use the analogy a lot. I treat my Alexa like I treat my kids. I don't say inappropriate things in front of my kids that I don't want them to hear. And I don't treat, you know, I don't say inappropriate things in front of Alexa that I don't want her to hear. Or learn, right? <laughs> or learn. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, you have to, at some point, you have to deploy some wisdom and discernment and say, hey, you know, I'm going to de- make a deliberate effort to have a technology-free zone, or I'm going to have a deliberate effort to have a safe space or or whatever. If that concerns you, then, you know, you just have to make those efforts. But every single one of us, my gosh, I bought my dad a new cell phone mm-hmm. last week and it had five cameras on it. Oh my gosh. Uh, you know, five cameras and two stereo microphones. I was like, good Lord, if that were ever to become a sensor, you know, he's got wide angle and telephoto and, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the capabilities of compromising that one device could pay off huge dividends. So you just have to, you know, we're going to have to evolve as a culture and figure out how to live with the technology and, and possibly understand that, you know, again, there, there's there's risk with that. So hopefully he he either bought it from a good company or knows how to uh, <laughs> lock down that that phone because at some point somebody or everyone's going to eventually be hacked or breached. Yeah, absolutely. And and so you know that's that's a great point, and I think that we've seen it um, specifically over the solar winds and the exchange events that have unfolded over the last couple of months. Um, you know, in both of those events. And I'm sure your listeners are familiar with what I'm talking about, but uh, the IT teams and individual organizations did everything right. You know, they patched everything. Mm-hmm. They had their firewalls. They had their antiviruses. They had their SIEM systems, and they still got breached. Yeah, they followed um, their compliance. They were compliant. That's right. They were compliant. They did everything right, and they were still breached. Some of the best companies in the world, right? You know, Microsoft mm-hmm. and Mandian. You know, some of these guys were uh, were culpable in this. Uh, I think it's important to notice that both government and industry. Uh, we're both impacted, you know, despite their best efforts. Um, so I don't think that, you know, the the pursuit of, of profit or the pursuit of compliance uh, spared anyone from that, uh, you know, that series of events. Uh, and, you know, ultimately, we've got to train like we fight uh, and we've got to prepare for the inevitable. Uh, we recently did a tabletop exercise and, you know, I got some feedback from some of the people and they're like, well, you know, that that's unrealistic. That wouldn't happen. Well, yeah, but we have to assume that will. Right. Just like right. Ev- every bank can be robbed. Uh, it doesn't matter how many guards you have. It doesn't matter how many guns you have, how many cameras or alarm systems. If your adversary spends enough time and enough resources, they'll get what you have. And we just have to uh, presuppose that that's going to happen and that we can respond. Um, because ultimately, you know, Willie Sutton is credited with, with saying that, you know, he was asked the question once, why do you rob banks? And his response was, was because that's where the money is, right? Our, our information has value and our information um, is desirable. And so people are going to come for it, right? Why are we going to get hacked? Because that's where the information is uh, and that's where the money is. And we've seen the rise of ransomware. And for the most part, you know, our industry has been very ineffective with dealing with ransomware uh, with entire segments of our, of our population that just say, well, we've got cybersecurity insurance. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
and that's how, kind of how they transfer that risk, right? Because yeah. they do the best they can, but we right. you see it. You see it over and over again when you have conversations with people. They're like, "Well, you know, we've got all the firewalls, and we've got all the antivirus, and we've got all the this and the that." But you know, when it comes down to the end of the day, that's what we have insurance for. Well, that's a terrible answer. And uh, you know, you, you know, you mentioned adversary, and the adversary in the uh, SolarWinds breach hack. You know, it's it's like I always say they have the most important thing. They've got time. They also have people, tons and tons of people. And of course they have money, but most yeah. of all, they have time. Who, who knows how long they've been sitting in, in, in there, you know? Right. Absolutely. And, and, and who knows how long they're going to continue, right? Correct. And, and so I've been on the other side of the, of the big door on, you know, the American efforts. And I can tell you that, you know, we, we are doing the exact same thing. We spend time, countless hours and countless resources, uh, you know, trying to further our nation's goals. And we're talking about not just nation state actors, but, but, you know, the barrier for entry into cyber is very, very low. Um, you, you can spend a, a nominal amount of money in the grand scheme of things and, and develop some pretty robust capability. Uh, I read an article recently where someone was postulating that the pandemic had created a lack of good quality jobs for college graduates. So they were turning to ransomware instead. <laughs> uh, where, you know, they're like, well, we got to earn a living. Let's, let's find something that's lucrative. And they were, you know, turning to social engineering people and phishing campaigns. And, uh, you know, the article was postulating that this gave rise to the ransomware as a service, mm. uh, where, you know, they just created the infrastructure and now, you know, whoever wants it can go out and use it. Interesting article. Yeah. It's ultimately it's capitalism. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Right. <laughs> All right, uh, Jonathan, don't want to take any more of your time with your uh, your busy self. Um, thanks for stopping by. Well, Nick, I appreciate it. And, and you know, again, I, a, a fan of the show, I just recently discovered it, but I uh, went back and listened to several of your episodes and uh, quality product. And I really appreciate, you know, the, the time and attention that you're putting into helping educate, you know, not just information security professionals, but you know, the IT world in general. And uh, it's an important voice and it's an important message. And I appreciate it. All right, and thanks for staying in sync with InfoSec Sync. Thanks, Nick. That's it for this episode. Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. And as always, thanks for staying in sync with InfoSec Sync.